0: Hello and welcome to The Libertarian Podcast. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined as always by The Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the road to tax reform. And Richard, we recently had the Trump administration releasing its first concrete plans for how it's intending to tackle tax reform – this is, I should say up front, admittedly something of a thumbnail sketch. This is not a wildly detailed plan, but we do at least have a sense of the contours of it. And I'm just going to start today by sort of walking you through this piece by piece. I'll start with individual tax rates where the administration says it wants to consolidate the seven tax brackets that we have now down to three. Highest rate there would be 35 percent. That's basically a reversion to the high under the George W. Bush rates, subsequently went up to 396 during the Obama years. And Richard, one of the points that you'll you'll even hear from some people on the right is they will occasionally argue there's not a whole lot of room to play anymore on the individual rates. That if you look at a president like Jack Kennedy or Ronald Reagan, when they were tackling tax cuts on the individual rates, they had these huge marginal rates that they could cut. But here today, there may be a few percentage points that you can shave off, and some of these people will say actually you shouldn't be focusing as much on the rates as you should just on simplifying the overall tax code. That's where you can really galvanize the growth.
1: Where do you come down on that? I think I disagree with it. If you go back to the 1986 uh, rate cut, uh, Reagan took them way down. He took them down to 28 point something or other percent with a funny bubble in the middle because of some tax anomalies. Well, that's a long way down. The other thing, of course, is that you didn't mention, but it's absolutely critical. One of the things that the Trump plan calls for is phasing out the Obamacare excise tax on capital gain, which stands about three and a half percent. And that will make a huge difference in that situation as well. Uh, The other point that I would make is I don't think there's any need for three brackets. If you took the top one down to the Reagan level of 28, there's no reason to have a 10 and a 15 percent bracket. Uh, Better to simply have one bracket rather than worrying about notch effects at relatively low levels. And so I think that you can do this. The difficulty, of course, that you always get is you have to figure out whether or not the production gains are going to be sufficiently large to offset the revenue losses that come on a static model. To the extent that the administration is using, willing to use dynamic scoring and to get the committees and the various uh, congressional oversight offices to do that, uh, they have a fighting chance of winning that battle. Uh, I would think that before you settle on the rates, that's going to be a subject of political disputation, and you'd probably want to get better numbers one way or another. Uh, but I think the important thing to understand about the Trump plan is to contrast it with the Clinton plan, which, thank heaven, was never put into place. She was not going to eliminate the estate tax. She was going to raise it fairly, at fairly low levels to amount 65%. She was going to raise the income tax and try to make the thing even more of a skew. Uh, So it may well be that the Democrats say that this is a very sketchy plan. But, of course, the Clinton plan in many ways is very sketchy as well. And the important question is, which sketch sets you in the right direction? And I've long been an Adam Smith type who believes in a broad base and relatively low marginal rates and relatively low average rates. So I think this is a welcome development uh, by the Trump team, and I hope that he has the political skill and perseverance to carry it through.
0: Let's go back actually for a moment, Richard, and footnote a key phrase that you use there. You referred to the importance of dynamic scoring, and that's a concept that is very important to tax wonks and public policy specialists. It's not something that's very well understood by the broader public. So just explain to us for a moment what dynamic scoring is and why it's so important when you're thinking through tax reform.
1: Sure. I mean, the first thing to do is to understand the word that's used in opposition to dynamic, which is static. And the basic point of a static model is that you assume when there's a change in tax rates, the only thing that will happen is that revenue will move in accordance with the change in that rate, but there'll be no change in the mix of goods and services offered or the total level of output in both these dimensions. So under a static model, if you lower the taxes by 10%, uh, what will happen is, is that you will lower government revenues by 10%. Under a dynamic model, people are going to start asking the right question, which is now that you've changed the taxes and lowered them, uh, what is going to happen to the way in which people respond if, in fact, they can keep a larger portion of their after-tax income uh, than they could beforehand so that they get more money out and less money going to the government? Well, if you do it in that particular way, you would expect to see some increase in the total level of activity. And if that activity increases by more than 10 or 11 percent, then you will have a lower level of taxation on the one hand and higher revenues on the other. Uh, This is known as the Laffer curve, and there's a huge debate, but the curve essentially looks like a bell-shaped curve, and if you're on the far right side and you lower the taxes, uh, the total revenues will increase. If you turn out to be on the left side and you have taxes that are already too low and you lower them further, uh, then the revenue will be wiped out. It's an empirical question as to which way this will go. Generally speaking, if you look at the past major tax cuts, the Reagan cut, the Kennedy cut, there were pretty quick and fast responses to this. If you look at the two Bush tax cuts, the 2001 didn't do very much because it was phased and slowly, and everybody was wondering whether it would be reversed or eliminated. But the second immediate capital gains cut, in fact, had fairly dramatic impacts, and what you did is you had a more rapid movement in the stock market because people would sell, and in fact, you had and increase in the government revenues with the lower taxes. So it's an empirical question ultimately, but if you're using dynamic scoring, it will always strengthen the case for something like the the Trump reforms. If you use static stuff, then the thing that people will say is, ah, you're lowering taxes, you're increasing the deficit, it's all very terrible.
0: What seems to be thus far the most controversial provision – … and the proposal that the president has brought out is their call for eliminating the deductibility of state and local taxes, which means in practice if you live in a high-tax state like California or New York, you could be paying substantially more to the feds come tax day. The, the critics of this provision say that it primarily benefits the wealthy and that it's a subsidy to these high-tax states at the expense of low-tax places. Um, And because of that, it gives those high-tax states even less incentive to get their fiscal house in order. Where do you come down on that, Richard?
1: Well, I'm in favor of eliminating the various kinds of deductions for state and local taxes, and I think the simple explanation for it is exactly the one that you adumbrated. If, in fact, uh, uh, you get these deductions, uh, what happens is that 40%, say, for the top bracket people, of state and local taxes is now paid by, by the federal government. If you then look at people in low state taxes, like Texas or Florida, where there's no income tax at all, the shortfall in federal revenue has to be made up by them. Uh, We do not like taxes to distort relative preferences, and the moment you decide that you're going to eliminate the deduction, it's going to put a lot of pressure on state legislatures in high tax states to cut their taxes uh, because that will, in effect, reduce the burden that their citizens are going to have by a larger amount than it would be if the subsidy were in place. Now, this will generate, of course, a huge amount of political stuff because virtually all the poorly governed states are the ones with very high tax brackets. There are states like Illinois where the taxes are relatively low and flat uh, which are catastrophes but it's not because of what they do with taxes it's other things that come into the mix that actually create problems so this state is terrible on pensions it's terrible on workman's compensation it's terrible on property taxes it's terrible because it has Mike Madigan who ought to resign promptly in order to improve the possibility of success in the state so it's not a cure-all but essentially it's like everything else the issue here is not do you go from hell to heaven the question is do you make along the spectrum, some kind of sensible improvement. And on this particular issue, the Trump position is in fact correct. It has nothing to do with blue and red states, rich or poor. Technically, you do not want the tax system to create implicit subsidies between two groups, because those subsidies always distort relative preferences as they would otherwise exist in a no tax world.
0: And of course tax reform as we've talked about before always comes down to the question of whose ox gets gored. So uh, let me just give you a quick rundown here Of What the Trump proposal protects and what it gets rid of and you can just sort of take these as you please. The administration has proposed to stick with the home mortgage interest deduction and the deduction for charitable giving. On the other hand, it is proposed to do away with the estate tax and with the alternative minimum tax. How do those priorities strike you?
1: Well, to answer that particular question, the one I think that ought to disappear is the home mortgage deduction. It's not allowed in Canada. You should not allow people to deduct something when, in fact, what it does is it gets them consumption. Deduction of mortgage money is perfectly sensible in a business context because what you do is if you don't have that deduction, all the revenues that come in are going to be taxed as income instead of as return of capital. But in the personal case, it turns out you get consumption rather than taxable income consumption is outside the system, uh, so the deduction should be outside the system. And again, it's exactly the same distortion argument. In a tax-free world, uh, the desirability of home ownership is much lower than it is in a taxable world, mainly because for a whole variety of reasons, rental property is often a much more efficient way to organize housing, particularly for poorer people who don't have to have that 20% down payment in search of a greater subsidy. So I'm strongly in favor of getting rid of that one. In terms of The charitable deduction, I'm strongly in favor of keeping it. Uh, Because what the charitable deduction is, is a matching grant by the government, uh, which allows private people to Tick charities that they care about, and the government will match it. It's not a source of income to the people who are getting the deduction. The income comes to the people who receive it. And I think that to the extent that uh, government runs various kinds of transfer payments, they always do it badly. And when private people run it, they tend to do it much better. So I'm in favor of basically getting rid um, of keeping rather the charitable tax. Uh, when it comes to the estate tax, I have argued for years that the whole thing is a complete mistake. and ought to be eliminated and I haven't changed my mind. Let's start with the simplest observation. If you have somebody who dies at 60 and somebody who dies at 90 and they start at 60 with the same amount of wealth, uh, this wonderful impartial tax will basically tax a hundredfold the person who dies young to the person who dies old, which is a crazy kind of inter- age, generational equity between the long-lived and the short-lived. Secondly, the estate tax is a deferred tax on compensation for money which has already been taken into account in the income system. And to the extent that you do this, it's a massive disincentive with respect to saving that you really don't need. And third, what it does is it distorts the way in which people organize their assets during in life, so that in order to raise revenues under the estate tax, you have to lose them to some extent under the income tax. There are grotesque out there which work, which say, if you put property into inefficient forms, you reduce your estate tax, even though it will be harder for you to run the kinds of property that you have. So good riddance, you want to have a single tax mechanism, preferably flatter than not, preferably on consumption than on income to do it. The alternative minimum tax is, again, a mistake. Too much jostling, too much um, artificial manipulation of one way or another. If, in fact, you get the deductions right for various kinds of other things, you don't need it. One of the reforms that's not mentioned by anybody, and I didn't talk about in my Hoover piece, is the question, what do you do about various kinds of tax shelters, the sort of thing that a person like Warren Buffett takes advantage of? It turns out if you know the way in which depreciation, partnership taxation, and taxation at death work, you can shield millions upon millions of dollars in a thoroughly illegitimate way from the tax system, and only the rich people can use those schemes, and those schemes ought to be promptly abolished, but you always want to do is to have the tax parallel to the extent possible, the changes in your economic welfare. And what happens under these other systems is you get huge deductions in the early years that made no relationship to your economic losses, and then you're forgiven the whole thing at the time of death, uh, so that you get all the, da- all the benefits of early deductions, and you never have to recapture any of them. This is one of the long-standing national disgraces, but people don't like to talk about it, because it's a little bit complicated, and in fact, some very, very rich people, e.g. Warren Buffett are probably very much into these kinds of tax vehicles. They are a thing of beauty to watch from the inside, but socially they're thoroughly destructive.
0: Let me ask you about corporate tax reform. Part of the proposal here is to drop the current corporate tax rate, which is up at 35 percent at the federal level, down to 15 percent in the president's proposal. I believe in Paul Ryan's it's down to 20 And the Trump administration also wants to move to a territorial tax system where American firms would only be taxed on their domestic income, not the income that they make overseas. And Richard, there's a tendency on the left and I think amongst a lot of lay observers too to say, you know, why why do we need to worry about the corporations? They can pay the freight. We really – we need to worry about the middle class and below, the people who could use the most help. But – In that context, what are the knock-on effects of corporate tax reform? If you're a worker rather than an executive, what's it going to mean for you?
1: Well, the first thing to understand about the reduction in the corporate tax is that the increased capital that is available at the firm level will increase the level of investment that the firm has, which will in turn create a greater demand for labor coming from various kinds of people. Uh, so what happens is when people start to talk about it, they assume that the dynamic nature of the economy is completely re- is completely suppressed, and they never ask about how a change with respect to the taxation of one person alters the way in which they do business with other people, which would otherwise deal with these things in a kind of a sensible basis. So I think it's a real caricature of a model um, to try to assume that. Uh, The second thing, of course, is that American taxes are extremely high and you get the following effects coming out of them, uh, which is that if you have capital overseas, you don't repatriate it to the United States because you're going to have to pay a huge amount. If you're a foreign company and you're trying to figure out whether or not to invest in plant in the United States, you're going to be reluctant to do that if it turns out it's 35% taxation here as opposed to 15 to 20% somewhere else. And one of the most important lessons to learn about taxation is that the transactions you really worry about are the ones that never take place because people stay outside your border knowing what the tax structure is within it. Now, there is a question as to whether or not we can sustain the revenue loss associated with a 15% tax increase, which is the same problem as you have with the Laffer curve. And you may have to start at 20. You may be able to go to 10. Uh, What you don't want to do, and thank heaven the plan did not do this, is start to have these border crossing taxes on things imported into the United States, which is a sure recipe to have a trade war if everybody else decides to imitate us. So I think the answer to all this stuff about Trump is you may quarrel about the rapidity of the rate moves and the sustainability, Uh, but you can't quarrel about the direction. And there's one last point about this. If, in fact, you get the taxation system right, uh, you flatten the thing so that there are fewer people who are wholly exempt from this, what it should do in a sensible way is put some kind of a break on the amount of spending that's taken place. One of the implicit assumptions of a lot of people, including virtually all the Democrats, is every single expenditure and transfer payment that we have in place today is God-given, even if it was introduced in 2012. And if you understand that these programs can be rolled back, then in effect, you just have to ask the following question. Put the um, expenditures as they were at the end of the Clinton administration at the end of 2000. If you could get transfer payments down to that level, and they've gone up way since that amount, uh, would these taxes balance? And I think the answer is they come a lot closer than they do today. And so you cannot do is to simply say that every time you introduce a transfer payment, the only question you ask on the tax side is how you fund it. The fundamental question you have to ask is if you put a sensible system of taxation in place, there will be some things that we cannot afford to fund and we ought to cut back on them. Every one of these transfer permits, whether it's agricultural subsidies, food stamps, you name it, essentially have always increased faster than the rate of inflation and have increased more rapidly uh, than the cost of living. Uh, so there's got to be some water in this situation. And indeed, I think it's fair to say that if you try to understand the greatest change in America, the reason why growth levels have founded in the last 30 or so years is that the transfer payments have taken place of the infrastructure improvements. And even the infrastructure programs today with their job programs, affirmative action programs, gizmo programs and so forth have themselves become transfer programs so if you have to tease out all the numbers it turns out that the system has gotten much worse and my one piece of advice to mr trump is try to encourage production try to slow down transfers
0: all right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting definingideas at Hoover.org. And now you can also see a new series of videos inspired by Richard's work on free speech. That's at policyed.org. Policyed.org. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution.